Good afternoon, everybody. Good to see everyone on this beautiful day. Thank you uh, to that last person here who read our theme verse. You guys know we have a theme verse, right? Uh, you know, we, we went over this two weeks ago. Now we're going to preach on it every, every Sunday this year. I'm kidding, Richard. <laughs> um. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 is our theme verse. I'd like to keep that before us. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I'll tell you what this verse tells me. It's something pretty incredible. When you consider all the craziness in our world today, all the craziness in our country, all the craziness in our lives, is that God has a plan for the world. It's a plan to redeem it, to repair it, to restore it, to resurrect it. And he's not just doing that for us. He's doing that through us. Through us. And uh, this, this is the calling that is on God's people. In fact, this verse, that's not the first time that God applies uh, this verse to his people. Uh, he first applies this verse, because it's a quote from the Old Testament, uh, to his people after he took them out of Egypt. Um, he led them into the desert to a mountain where he instructed them, I want you to approach that mountain like a bride. And when they did that, God came down like a bridegroom and he took them as his own, uh, entered into a marriage with them. And what's true about that marriage, which is true about every marriage. I mean, my, my wife, Libby, she's my partner. And so Israel, as, as, as God's people, God's spouse, uh, literally becomes God's partner to repair and to redeem the world. This now is placed on us. Massive calling. Massive. Is it time to go, Richard? Okay. <laughs> I love our church. Love it. Wouldn't want to change anything about it. Richard, you might want to just stay out there, though. Um, just, yeah, he's already been to two services this weekend, so. Okay, um, one of the things that we, we, I don't know if we really stop and think about, that an aspect of being God's people in a holy nation, set apart for God, partnering with him, is time. How we spend our time. And, and how that matters to God. So much so that God gave his people a calendar with these God-designed, God-shaped, God-instructed holidays. And, and to be honest, I, I don't know always how to um, deal with these holidays. I, I don't know exactly always what they should mean uh, for us. Um, and and, and here's, here's the tension. Uh, in one sense, God instructed them, God shaped them, and he, he, he told his people, I want you to keep these holidays forever, but then in another sense, uh, 
Christ came and he fulfilled them, or at least fulfilled a lot of them. I mean, for instance, when you take the first and most important holiday, which is Sabbath, I mean, God said to his people, look, I want you to have the same rhythms uh, that I had when I made the world. For six, in six days, um, I, 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 I made the world, and I want you to build things. I want you to make things. I want you to create things. I want you to steward that little, that little sphere that, that you have. I want you to steward it for my glory. But on the seventh day, just as I did when creating the world, I want you to cease to rest. And this is more than just physical rest. But it created space for God's people to look back at the world that God originally made and the rest, the true rest that Adam and Eve had and also to look forward to the true rest that Messiah would one day bring. And this is why Jesus, when he shows up and he says, come to me, all you who are weak and and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's talking about that, that rest that was lost in Eden, the rest that he would bring. And this is why Hebrews 4 says that Christ is our Sabbath rest. So every day is is, is Sabbath to those of us who are in Christ. But does all of this then negate the holiday? I mean, look at us. We live our lives out of control, running around like our heads are cut off. Might it do us some good to actually still have a holiday once a week? We're now in light of Christ. We actually can rest in the rest that we have in him. So here's what we're going to do this year. Every time that we uh, hit one of, one of the holidays as they fall on the calendar, we're going to stop whatever we're doing, and we're going to step into it. We're going to learn what God might have. We're going to see how this, how the holiday points us to Christ. Um, and we're not going to be dogmatic about anything. Um, we're not going to be like, okay, we got to just uh, do everything that God says because Christ has fulfilled it. Um, but in another sense, we're not going to be dogmatic and say, because Christ fulfilled it, that we can't celebrate it. It's not an I have to. There's some I get to's. And we're going to let God's spirit, just as we study these holidays, let God's spirit lead us and guide us and direct us in in what we um, need to glean, take away, and have our lives changed. So does anybody know what today is in terms of God's calendar? Sukkot. I heard some of you guys whisper it. Uh, Some of us know this feast as the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, Sometimes in the Bible, it's it's called the Feast of, of Booze. And there, there's so many aspects to this feast, uh, so many angles that we could look at. Um, I think the most helpful place for us to start is by uh, looking at a big overview of the feast and where this particular feast fits into God's calendar. Now, God's holidays basically fall into two clusters. There, the, there are the spring holidays and the fall holidays. The spring holidays begin with what? Does anybody know? 
Passover. Uh, Passover is then followed by unleavened bread and then first fruits and then counting 50 days from Passover, which, which connects it to Passover, is the Feast of Pentecost. Those are uh, the, the spring holidays. The, the fall holidays are the Feast of Trumpets, which was two weeks ago, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, which was this past Wednesday, and then Sukkot, which begins today. Now, the place I'd like to take us is to Leviticus 23. There are other places where God spells out his instructions for these feasts, but I think Leviticus uh, 23 uh, will be very helpful to us. It's found on page uh, 88 in a blue Bible like mine. The first two verses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals or feasts, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And there's something I uh, want us to um, see right at the outset. Notice that God says, These are my feasts. These are not uh, celebrations or holidays that just evolved out of Jewish history. These are feasts, uh, these are holidays that God shaped and then God instructed to his people. The other thing I want us to know is that God calls them appointed times. Don't think about an appointment when you make an appointment. Every appointment requires two things. What are they? Time, place. Sometimes I forget one of those two things, and it just, then, then the meeting never takes place. Um, I'm learning uh, and getting better at that. Um, this word for appointment is the Hebrew word moed, which is used 45 times in Leviticus. 41 times it specifies the place. And the place is always God's tent. That's why that tent is called the tent of meeting. It's the tent of the appointment. Four times, and it's, they're all used here in Leviticus 23, is, is when it specifies when. God's saying, these are the times. This is when uh, we're going to have this appointment. So Israel, get your calendars out because I'm going to make appointments to meet with you. Now, sometimes in our relationship with God, I feel like we kind of put ourselves in the center of it. And I hope it's not because we take ourselves too seriously. But even when it comes to spending time with God, in our minds, we think that we're the ones who make the appointment with God. Not realizing that God also makes appointments with us. And this is where I wrestle a little bit. We can't use Christ to blow off the appointments that God would have for us. Now, the other thing that God calls these holidays is also he calls them sacred assemblies. And the most basic word of, of, of the word assembly in, in the original language in the, in the Hebrew, it, it means rehearsal. So in other words, all of these feasts that God is instructing are rehearsals. They're sacred rehearsals. 
Yes, they celebrate something specific, a, a, a great act of God in the past, but they're also rehearsing for something in the future. And just think about what a rehearsal is. I mean, I take a wedding. Every wedding has a rehearsal, and everyone who's in the wedding has to be there because the, the rehearsal hopefully is going to mirror the wedding the next day. It's going to prepare everybody for it. But here's the deal. The rehearsal is not the wedding. The rehearsal is not the main event. And, and that's the same thing with these feasts. The, these feasts are rehearsals. They are preparing God's people for the main event. And then when you stop and consider what these feasts celebrate in the past, like Sabbath celebrates something as great as the creation of the world itself. Uh, Passover celebrates something as great as God literally taking his people out of slavery in Egypt um, and setting them free. Uh, when you consider Pentecost, it's celebrating God coming down on that mountain and, and, and taking Israel to be his bride but because these holidays are rehearsals, sacred rehearsals, the rabbis concluded there's a greater exodus yet to come, a greater redemption than God taking us out of Egypt, a greater marriage, something greater even than creation itself, new creation. And they connected all of this to the coming of Messiah. And I'll tell you what, in light of where we are in the story, it almost gives me chills to think how God's people every single year are rehearsing the coming of Jesus Christ through these holidays. And then when you look at the text... This is what we can conclude. Next PowerPoint. So here's the biblical holidays. Spring holidays, fall holidays. Spring holidays start with Passover. Passover celebrates God taking his people out of Egypt, redeeming them through what? The blood of a lamb that covered them. And that's the day Jesus died. And then... The next day, which is the Sabbath, always the Sabbath following Passover. Passover, any year, it could be on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or, or Sunday. Uh, but whatever day it is, then on, on the Sabbath following Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So when Jesus died, it was on, Passover was on a Friday night. The Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, was that next Saturday, uh, Shabbat. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is a feast when, when God's people uh, descend upon Jerusalem, and one of the things that they do is that they, they pray, God, would you bring forth life from the earth? And on that very day, the life of God is going into the earth, not being buried, he's being planted. Because the next feast, which is on uh, the first day of the week, following the Passover, uh, which we call Sunday, is the feast of first fruits. And on the day when they bring all the first fruits of the harvest into the temple, their first and best, uh, it's, it's on this day that Jesus comes forth from the earth as the first fruits of God, the first fruit, fruits of the resurrection, with a great harvest of resurrection still to come. 
Oh, and then 50 days after Passover, after that, the day where they uh, celebrate Pentecost, which is the celebration of God coming down on that mountain. Um, And not only did he give the law, but the law was in the context of a marriage that was taking place on on, on Mount Sinai between God and his people. And so that law that was given uh, were really wedding vows that were spoken. And on this Pentecost in Acts 2, God comes again down on his holy mountain. And rather than giving us the law, he fills us with his spirit. And so the church right now exists between the spring holidays and the fall holidays, uh, knowing that the Feast of Trumpets, which celebrates uh, Judgment Day, Paul says that trump will sound when when, when the Lord comes. And what we have, will have as believers is, is that day of atonement, Yom Kippur, and, and all that that celebrates, that we are covered in the blood of Christ. We are hidden in him, which then sets the table for the last feast that we're going to look at today. And you'll see what that, what that means for us uh, in the future, which is incredible. Right now, I almost want to say, are there any questions? But I don't think I can really do that here. Um, So Sukkot, or Tabernacles, is the last holiday of the year. It's right at the end of their final harvest. All the major holidays are connected to uh, the harvest. Passover celebrates the barley harvest. Pentecost celebrates the wheat harvest. And Sukkot, Tabernacles, celebrates the olive and grape harvest. And now we're back into talking about food. Because God is into food. And these holidays are here to celebrate food. And we take food for granted. Because in our reality, food is easy to come by. It's it's pretty inexpensive. We have supermarkets and restaurants on every street corner. We have refrigeration where we can store large amounts of food in our house. And so the thought of having enough food uh, on a given day or enough food for the year, I don't think that's even crossed our minds. But the ancient world, this was always on their mind. Because every morsel that you would put in your mouth, you had to grow it. And every family had about an acre And with that small little piece of land, they had to grow enough wheat, enough barley, enough figs, enough grapes, enough olives to survive. Because to the ancient, this this is what life was. Life was all about survival. And their biggest worry was a lot different than our worries. Their biggest worry, are we going to have enough food to eat to survive another year? And here's the deal. Much of our world still lives this way. But there's another piece also added to this equation. Israel isn't Egypt. Israel didn't have a Nile River, a river that every year flooded and and provided the most fertile land, and it was a given. In fact, Israel is a land that only gets rain three to four months of the year, the rest uh, of the year. Um, It's hot, it's dry, and uh, those months when it rains are November to February. 
Listen to what God says to his people in Deuteronomy 11. He says, the land that you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed, you irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land that you are crossing the Jordan to take possession is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands that I am giving you today, to Shema, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land and in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. And see, this is why the Bible speaks of not just water, but living water. And living water is, 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 is like rain because it's, it's that water that directly comes to us from the hand of God. And so God then instructs his people to have this feast that celebrates the rain, the living water that comes from God, that provides the harvest, that gives us life. And that's what this feast is, much of it. So turn in, uh, to Leviticus 23. And look at verses 39 to the end. It's the last paragraph because it's the last feast. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival or feast the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, a Sabbath. The eighth day is also a day of rest. So this feast is eight days long, bookend by two Sabbaths. On the first day, you're to take choice fruit from the trees and the palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and you are to rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, Come, celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths, a sukkah. That's why it's called sukkot. Sukkot is plural for sukkah. Live in booths for even for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites also live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. In other words, what God is saying is, I want an appointment. When the final harvest comes in, I want you to come to my tent, to my house, where I live, and I want you to bring your first and best, and we are going to have a thanksgiving. Not just for one day, seven days. Seven days. Seven days for you to say, Thank you. Thank you. And I, I, I love how God puts this. He just says, I want you to rejoice before me. Rejoice before me. You tell uh, a Dutch person, because I'm Dutch, I can say this. <laughs> you tell a Dutch person to rejoice, and you'll get someone kind of his arms folded and just chewing gum. You tell a Jew to rejoice, 
and you're going to get something out of control. Raucous, wild. On top of that, God says, not only rejoice before me for seven days, but also for seven days, I want you to have a palm branch in your hand. Now listen, a Jew isn't just going to, for seven days, just walk around holding this. They're not going to just do this with it. They are going to shake this thing with all their might. And here's what they realized. When you have thousands upon thousands of people shaking a palm branch, it sounds like pouring rain. So they would all shake these palm branches and they'd be praying for rain. God, send us rain. And at the same time saying, God, thank you for the last year of giving us just enough rain, just enough living water, just enough Kaim. God, send us more, please. Then they noticed in Psalm 118, Psalm 118, which is probably the third most text used by our New Testament authors. They are referring to this text all the time. It ends with, with branch in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar are right in God's living space in the temple. Here's what else they noticed. So this psalm, Psalm 118, became uh, the popular song that they would sing uh, at this feast. And, and they also noticed in the heart of Psalm 18 is, is this clause, Lord, save us, please. In Hebrew, it's a word that you've all heard before. It's one word. It's hosh, hosanna. In Hebrew, it sounds hoshana. The na at the end is the thing that, that they would punch the most because na in Hebrew is this passionate plea, uh, plea with God. It's please God. Hoshan means Lord save us, please. And so a lot of times it would just all be, uh, sometimes they'd sing Psalm 118, sometimes Psalm 18 would be reduced to this one word chant, Hoshana, as they're waving palm branches. When I was in college, um, I traveled to Europe uh, one summer, and I didn't plan this because I'm not that much into soccer. Somehow I just happened to be in Berlin, Germany, In 1990, the very day that the Germans won the World Cup. Wow, was that a cultural experience. (laughs) Literally, I think every German in, in Berlin was out in the streets. Many of them had their German flag. And it's not that they were all shouting or screaming what they wanted to shout and scream. In unison, every German was singing Away, 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 away. You know the song, right? I didn't butcher it too bad. It was eerie. It was eerie. It was passionate. It's kind of what I depict. 
I mean, especially uh, when, when, when some of the Jewish rabbis, even to this day, will say, you haven't seen true joy until you've been in a synagogue on Sukkot. In fact, they call the Feast of Sukkot simply the holiday. When is the last time we spent eight days just praising God? God, thank you. Thank you for everything you've given us this last year. Thank you for the daily bread. Thank you for the, for, for the, for the rain. Thank you for all of the provision that you've given to us for all of life. And God, save us. Send us more living water. Now the biblical event that, that Sukkot celebrates are the 40 years in the wilderness, the desert. Because God says to his people, I don't want you to forget the desert. Don't forget that desert. Because nothing shapes God's people more. Nothing shapes the story more than the desert. Deuteronomy 8 begins with remember, God speaking, remember how I led you these 40 years in the, rem- in the desert. I want you to remember the desert. Remember how I led you. Remember how hard it was, how tough it was. But in that place, in that space, everything that I was to you, Because here's the deal, when you get to the promised land, and this is how Deuteronomy 8 ends, you will eat and you will be satisfied, you will build fine houses, you will settle down, your herds, your flocks will grow large, your silver and gold will increase, all that you have will be multiplied, and you will come to me and praise my name. That's not how it reads. It says, when all your silver gold increase, your houses, you're living this large life, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. Those are some of the most depressing words in the Bible. Because this is the danger of a comfortable, prosperous, desert-free life. God says, your heart will become proud and you will forget me. In fact, God even does even more commentary at the end of Deuteronomy 8. He says, you know what you're going to do? You're going to say to yourself that my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. I did it. I accomplished it. Look at me. And then God is going to rebut that and say, "Uh uh-uh. Who gave you your hands? Who gave your, you your abilities? Who gave you the resources to be what you are and to have what you have? Don't forget the desert. If you want to know why I love Israel, why I love to take people to Israel, it is because I love to take them into the desert for four days. I mean, that desert is so hot, it's so intense. You're in it for just 
five minutes and you feel your vulnerability, you feel your weakness. But I'll tell you why that place is special because even after having just spent just three or four days in that place, you realize that you have nothing but you lack nothing because you have God. And you have God through his people. This is why God says to Israel, he says, I I led you here to, to that place, to that desert, to make you hungry. I had to strip you of all your creaturely comforts, all of your idols, the idol of money, the idol of a nice home, the idol of success and prosperity, the idol of being good and looking good and having it good. And it's not that any of these things in and of themselves are inherently bad, but all of these things is what the Bible would call Egypt. And the Bible says Egypt is a dangerous place because Egypt can be the biggest barrier to us possessing what our hearts truly crave. Our hearts have been made by God to crave God. And desert is the one thing that weans our heart off all the stuff of Egypt and brings us right into the very thing our hearts were made for, the very arms of God. And this is why God says, I want one week a year during the Feast of Tabernacles for you to leave your comfort, leave your castle, Leave your castle-like existence and like your ancestors who lived in the desert for 40 years in a sukkah, I want you to live in a sukkah. Not just for a few hours, not even just for one night, but for seven nights, eight days. So today, Jews all over the world are leaving their apartments, their houses, their castles, to live in a sukkah. Let me show you some pictures so you believe me. Here's a family. It's a family event. This is all leading up to today. They're all building it. Young, old, decorating it. They're going to live in this space, again, for seven days. All generations. This could be New York City, uh, any of our big cities where there are Jewish neighborhoods, this happens to be a Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem. And for one week, they will leave the comforts of their existence to live, to remember. Not just to know their story through a sermon or words on a page, but to know it by living in it. Here's the most incredible thing that these 40 years in the desert that they celebrate uh, during this week. It's what God did with his people in the desert. He, God turned that desert into Eden. Eden means paradise. 
The reason why Eden is a paradise is because that is the place where God made his home, where God pitched his tent, where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And that's literally what God does with our deserts for his people. He turns our desert into Eden. He is a desert God. The place where we most get to know him, most experience his presence, where we see his face, experience his goodness. Where life becomes a paradise is a desert. And that's what God did for Israel in the desert. He made that desert become a new Eden. God literally, he literally pitched his tent in the middle of all of their tents and he dwelled with him with them and we know desert is is more than just um a a, a real place in the bible but but desert also um is is a metaphor it's a metaphor when, when when life is hard when life hurts when we experience pain and loss and 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 i think most of us who've been in these places when when we literally seek god with everything we have we 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 most experience him we we most know him his presence his love his living water his manna that he gives us but when we just stay in our world of comfort where our flocks increase, our gold and silver increases, we not only forget God, we forget who we are. We aren't castles. And as much as we can try to make our existence castle-like, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are nothing but a sukkah, a tent, that's vulnerable and weak and naked. Independent. And here's the deal. As they dwell in those tents for seven days, it's not just remembering that their ancestors dwelled in those tents, but that tent also represents God's tent. That God pitches his tent. That God's living with us in this space. I think this is what Paul is getting at in in more propositional form in in 2 Corinthians 12 when he's talking about his own desert and and he's talking about the the torment and and he's pleading with God, God, would you please take this thorn away? Please, God. And God says to Paul, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect. It's made complete in your weakness, in your suffering. And somehow Paul came through all of that to say, then therefore, I will boast about my weakness, about my deserts, about life being difficult. For when I'm in that place, Christ's power rests on me. And the word rest there is sukkah. In fact, it's not just sukkah, it's episukkah. God Epi makes his home in our deserts. Now the most awesome thing that the Feast of of Sukkot celebrates is not just looking at the the past when God made his home um, with his people, but it was 
looking to the future, the future hope of God coming and pitching his tent among us. And then when you go to John's gospel, and, and John has the audacity to say about Jesus right at the beginning, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's that word again, uh, suka in Hebrew, skene in Greek. It literally means God in Jesus pitched his tent to make his home among us. And then by the time of Jesus, I mean, this feast developed a lot of um, extraordinary traditions and festivities. I mean, you have to understand, Josephus tells us that Jerusalem would swell to two to three million for this feast. I, I hardly know how that's possible. But you have this, all the Jews from all over the world descending upon Jerusalem for this huge camping out party. And then certain traditions and festivities of all, uh, uh, developed uh, around this feast. Um, one of the big ones on the last day was this fireworks display or, or the equivalent of a fireworks display. They would raise up these candelabras, which were 75 feet high, and they would turn them into these huge torches. And, and, and they would put this right in the courtyard of the temple, several of them. Literally, not only was the whole temple lit up, but all of Jerusalem was lit up. Even Josephus says that you could see all of Jerusalem lit up from Bethlehem. John's gospel says in the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up in the temple. And he said, I am the light of the world. I'm the world's light. Because the whole purpose of, of, of that ceremony was, was to look to that future when, when God would come and make his home with us again. And, and the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 60, they, no longer will we need the sun for, for, for Messiah's face will, will be the sun. And Jesus says, I am that light. I'm that light that God spoke in the darkness at creation. And I'm the world's light. Probably the, the, the most momentous festivity of the Feast of Sukkot by the time of Jesus. Every day they would have this water ceremony in the temple. The temple would be packed, thousands of people, shouting Hoshana, waving their palm branches. The high priest would come up and he would stand on top of the altar, and he would have this picture, and he'd raise it high in the air and keep it lifted until everyone became silent. And then he would pour it, and it would be empty. Everyone, boo. So go on for seven days. But on the last and greatest day of the feast, called the Hoshana Rabbah, the, the, the great Hoshana. This day, the priest would take that picture. He'd take it, followed by a large procession outside the temple, all the way down to the pool of Gihon. Gihon means uh, gusher. It's a spring, and he would fill that jar with that living water, make his way into the temple, streets lined with people waving palm branches, shouting out Hoshana, make his way into the temple, 
come up and march up on top of the altar, hold that thing high in the air. Also, he'd have another pitcher with wine, and he'd wait for everyone to be quiet. And he'd pour that water and wine on the altar. As everybody prayed for rain, God, please send my Cain. And John's gospel tells us on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood in the temple and he shouted, I am Maim Kaim. I am living water. And if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And springs of living water will gush, will gihon from him. Now, did Jesus pick the time of that day when the priest had the whole temple in silence and did he just into that silence shout, I am Maim Kain? I think so. Because he is. Everything that this feast celebrates is realized in Christ. God in Christ dwells with us in our deserts. He's the living water that our souls thirst. He's the light, says Paul, that shines in our light, in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God which is in the face of Christ. But here's the deal. This feast is not yet fulfilled because something still awaits. Zechariah 14 tells us that when God's Messiah comes again to judge the nations, to establish his eternal kingdom on earth, uh, some of you might refer this as, as the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Zechariah tells us this is the one feast that we are going to celebrate forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And I think that's what John has in mind when he writes his late last work, Revelation 7. Is that future, new heavens and new earth, God's people celebrating the feast of Sukkot. Listen to what John says in Revelation 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were all holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation, not Hoshana, Lord, save us, because he has saved us. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and, and, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worship God, saying, Praise and glory, wisdom, thanks, and honor, power and strength be to our God, not just for seven days, but forever. And then one of the elders asked me, Those in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, Yes, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation the greatest of all deserts, and they washed their robes. They made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God to serve him day and night in his temple. 
And he who sits on the throne will spread his sukkah, his tent, over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, Maim Kaim, and God will wipe away every tear, every tear from their face. That is an awesome hope. And so I don't know what to do with this feast. Maybe we should find a way to celebrate it. Find a way to step away from our comfort, step away from our homes, step away from our castles to celebrate all that God has been to us and is to us in our deserts, of God turning our deserts into Eden with the hope that one day we will rejoice before him, we will hunger and thirst no more, the sun will not beat down on us, there will be no more desert, he will lead us to springs of Maim Kaim, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. It's in light of that hope that we get to partner with God to repair the world. Let's pray. And Jesus, may we forsake Egypt so that we can drink deeply of you. You are living water. And may your spirit lead us this week to step away from things that become barriers to our souls being satisfied in you. And may we step into all that this feast celebrates. Not because we have to, because we get to. In Jesus' name, amen.